It's time for the Chip Race. Hello and welcome to the Chip Race, Unibet's flagship content. Way better than that one-year, one-million show, a.k.a. three idiots from Northern Europe do their poker winnings on the crypto markets. I'm David Lappin alongside Darrow Kearney, and this week we will be speaking to high-stakes sit-and-go and MTT beast, Twitch legend Parker Tonka P. Talbot, bankroll staking boss man Paul Jackson, and Irish poker pro Keith Cummins. Ian will bring us the news, including a look at the Unibet Online series. I'll have a quick chat with Kieran Cooney about Unibet's sponsorship of the 2018 Irish Live Poker Rankings. Dara and Diva will be breaking down a hand from Diva's Unibet Open London, but first... Staking Stables Well, last week, Dara and I talked about coaching, both the benefits and also the potential pitfalls when seeking out the right coach. We both have a lot of experience as coaches, so it is a topic we relish putting a spotlight on. Another area in which we are both experienced is staking. Now, I know we've talked about staking before, but this week I wanted to focus on staking stables rather than one-off staking, if you will. As many of you out there probably know, Dara and I, alongside Irish pros Dara Davey and Jason Tompkins, ran a successful stable from 2011 till 2016, known collectively as The Firm. It's fair to say it's a tricky old business, wrangling poker players. Uh, it's tougher than herding cats, but for the most part, we had a really enjoyable experience helping to finance and mentor many of Ireland's top online and live players who are still doing well today. Dara, what are your memories from The Firm? I guess my main memories are, are that was, it was just all very haphazard. It just sort of grew out of, first of all, the desire by me and, and Jason Tompkins to stake some players. It was kind of the time when staking was becoming a thing. And uh, I started staking Dara Davy. He was staking a couple of Irish players as well, uh, separately from me. Um, and we decided to combine forces. And then we met this guy and moved back from America and had done a bit of coaching. And neither of us really fancied doing much coaching at the time. <laughs> um, so we got in a guy called David Lappin. And yeah, it was myself, Jason, and then um, you for, for a while. And then Dara, who was my first, um, the first person that I staked, did so well that he, he, he outgrew me pretty quickly. And then he came in with us as a, as a staker as well so from the outside I think people thought it was a lot more organised than it was and it was sort of a part of a grand master plan to achieve domination at least of the Irish poker scene but it, <laughs> it really wasn't like that it was it, it, it was very haphazard um, and yeah I, I remember people saying that we were the Beatles and um, you were obviously the Ringo star. <laughs> but as everybody knows, Ringo was the first... Number one hit, wasn't it? To, to have a solo number one. So <laughs> there you, it is. You, you certainly came into your... And you, you, I think you, you, you very much shone as a coach in the early days because none of us had, had coaching experience. Um, and you you sort of came at it from a different perspective of us, not just trying to teach people what we knew, but trying to figure out what people actually needed to learn to, to, to become winning players. Well, that's very nice of you to, to, to pay that compliment. Uh, as Satan Sales go... Ours certainly was more of a mom and pop store compared to the super stables they have out there today. BitB, BBZ and BRS have huge swaths of players at all stake levels, grinding away across all the networks. And I think a lot of these staking superstructures, they do put a, a lot of focus on coaching, which is a really good thing. Later on, we're going to talk uh, with the owner of possibly the largest stable out there today, Paul Action Jackson. But before that, I wanted to get a player's perspective from within his stable. To that end, Irish pro Keith Cummins will be joining us shortly. Shortly. But before he stops by, Dara, I wanted to ask you your perspective on these super stables. Yeah, well, I guess in the interest of full disclosure, I should I should point out that I'm um, a headline coach for one of the stables, BRS, uh, the, the stable that Keith is in. 
so I'm not entirely impartial on this thing, but my experience of dealing with BRS has, has really been eye-opening in, in the sense that it's clear to me that they're approaching it much more methodically than we were. It's not just a sort of a haphazard, oh, let's get in a player, oh, what do we need to teach him, oh, who do we get to teach him? It's 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 much more structured and, and, and scalable, essentially, whereby they have sort of um, a lot of players who come in and then they go through a fairly formalized um, coaching structure with, with lots of uh, coaches not just me but uh, Brian Paris, James Aikenhead Simon Deadman are all coaches for BRS as well so I think there's two reasons why it's really good first of all it's much harder to beat the game now particularly online than it was a few years ago so you need to be constantly refreshing your skills and uh, learning, the, learning the latest tools and the latest tricks so you need sort of top class coaches who can, who, who can deliver that content but then the second element is like from a staking point of view sometimes people say and this is this was sort of the major obstacle in the beginning people say well why would you want to get staked uh, if you were a winning player you would you just have to give up a certain percentage of your income to whoever your staker is and you should just build build your own bankroll and go from there but I think beyond uh, providing a bankroll what a, what a stable can really do for a player is to, is to provide them with top class coaching which they wouldn't necessarily be able to afford on their own well I think that's all absolutely correct uh, without further ado I think let's bring out Keith we're joined now by a stalwart of Irish poker, both live and online. While he has been knocking about the Irish scene for longer than myself and Dara, 2015 was a bit of a breakout year for him when he chopped the WCOOP event for 240 grand. He followed that up with an amazing year in 2016 when he was second in WPT Nottingham for 119k and followed that up a few weeks after that with the win in Bucharest at the Unibet Open High Roller. He is also Ireland's newest blogger. Welcome to the show, Keith Cummins. Thank you very much. Great to be on. As David mentioned in the intro, you took down the high roller at the Bucharest Open in 2016. What are your memories from that? Um, it was a surreal feeling, like, overall, just to take down a high roller in Bucharest, like, you know. Anyway, we went along, played the poker, played the 1K, the main event, which I think they got huge numbers for that, wasn't it? Didn't they? They got, like... Yeah, it was re- it was record breaking. I think actually it was the biggest ever unit open, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I remember it was humongous, like you know. So um, play that and no success in that, and I was having a problem with my bank cards over there. I I never notified the bank that I was leaving the country, so I wasn't able to get access to any money, and the high roller was after starting, and I was, how the hell am I going to get into this without having to ask people to so I could borrow some money, like, you know. So uh, eventually, anyway, like, there's, I think there's about, there are about three hours into the high roller, maybe four hours. And um, I remember speaking with Nick, Nick O'Hara. He was one of the TDs over there at the time. And I, Nick would know me pretty well, like, and I was like, I, I need to get into this, like, so eventually, anyway, I was able to buy in using one of their online systems, Unibet. But they said, I'm taking a chance here. I can buy in using their system, give my car details, but it can take up to 24 hours or possibly even up to five days before the money hits their account. So it'd be a chance I'd be taking. Right. So I was willing to take the chance. So I went with it and it was like an hour after nothing had come through. And now I'm starting to panic. And next thing I get called over, it went through. Brilliant. And they were both, like, there was a couple of tournament directors, including Nick O'Hara there. And they were all kind of saying, like, 
with all the hassle you've had here now, you better go on and win it, like, you know? <laughs> so, like, it just seemed like it was, uh, I was destined to win it. Well, it was it was a phenomenal result, Keith, and congratulations on it. But I just wanted to point, you're, you are staked by uh, Paul Jackson's BR staking, uh, and you're a very vocal champion for them. Uh, could you tell our listeners, I guess, the benefits uh, of being staked, why you chose to stay staked, even after some very big results, both online and live? Yeah, well... I actually applied to BRS long t- about three, four years ago, and I got turned down by, um, I can't remember who it was. But I, I didn't have any volume or any, any playing abilities really online, like, you know. Um, but then a good friend of mine there, who I think you know as well, Dave Caffrey. Yeah. He used to be a coach with BRS, and, like, I've always looked up to Caff as a player, like, you know, I always... He used to follow his results online, like, and he used to get some big results. So uh, I, used, I got friendly with Calf, and um, it was Calf that actually got me in with BRS um, the first day, about, I suppose, nearly three years ago now. And so I, I went to BRS, like, started on a day roll of, like, 300 quid, and basically just worked up from there. Like, I think when I went to BRS, there was only, like, maybe 40, 50 players. Now they've only over 200 players. Wow. But, like, BRS are just, as a company, I think they're just superb. Like, I've looked into other staking companies out there, and to be honest, I, I just can't see a staking company that can could give you as much as what BRS can give you. Like, you know, every player has the access to a coach. There's individual groups... Um, where you would have a stable manager and your stable manager then would manage like 20, 25, maybe 30 players. Okay. And if you want to get into a coaching session um, every Monday morning, your stable manager will let you know what coaches are there and what sessions are available and what times. And the players can just jump into them like twice a week or even three times a week. And you can even request for one-on-one coaching as well. Like, you know, and like even outside of that, you, they have their um, specialised coaches, which they bring in uh, outside of BRS. The likes of yourself, Dara, you're, you're a coach with BRS. Yeah. Um, you have the likes of Brian Paris. Yeah, my experience with BRS is obviously I don't have the same uh, understanding of the of the internals and intricacies as you do, but um, I've, I've been really impressed since I started working with them. When Paul came to me initially, uh, the idea of coaching, um, I have to admit I was a bit reluctant because I'd done it for a stable in the past before, and it was just very messy. There was a lot of chasing around players and people not knowing when sessions were and so on. So I, so I expressed that reluctance to Paul and he said, don't worry, all you're going to have to do is turn on your computer at 6 p.m. every Thursday and the players will be there and just, you know, do, do, do your coaching session and we'll do all the we'll do all the administration and all that stuff. And that's been a, a, my experience. Basically, it's 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 a very well oiled machine. I never have to chase them for money. Um, the players are all very keen to learn. It's 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 obvious from dealing with BRS that the players feel uh, kind of huge um, loyalty and gratitude to 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 this to the staking organisation, which you don't necessarily get in, in a lot of stables. You're also the most recent entrant into the Irish blogging world, and you've already built up quite a readership. Uh, I think after just three blogs, what prompted you to start writing the blog, and where do you think you'll go with it in the future? Uh, well, to answer your first question, I think that it was yourself that prompted me to go. <laughs> and I, I've read your blogs, like, you know, and it's something I've always asked myself and said to myself, I don't know, will I write a blog? Yeah. But I always kind of, ah, 
fucking snow, I'm not going to bother. I can make a need you with myself, like, do you know what I mean? I, it'd be just the whole nervousness of it. So I, I had it, I can remember having a chat with yourself, Dara, um, oh, I think it was before the Caribbean, or was this over? It was in Roswell, I think, yeah. Was in Rosalov, yeah. And I, I think I was saying to yourself, I was thinking of going writing a blog, like, and you kind, you kind of all for it. You said just go for it, like, you know. So I said I'd go. I said I'd give it a go. And to be honest about it, I never wrote anything in my life. And even in school, I didn't last very long in school, like, you know. So, so my writing abilities, I don't think would have been that good. But then when I just started writing it, it just seemed to come out naturally. Yeah. And. I think what I said to you was like, you just have to be yourself, like don't copy anybody yeah. else because it has to be your blog. And like, if you go back a few years in Ireland, there, there were lots of actually Irish blogs, you know, four or five years ago, like in in addition to myself and David, like you had guys like John O'Shea, Nicky Power, yeah, Jason right. Tompkins, even Dara Davy had a blog, Nick Newport had a blog. And na- now there's, they just don't seem to be around anymore. So it would, it, it it's, it's, it's definitely good to see another uh, Irish blog some and somebody coming from a different perspective from us because obviously myself and David are quite similar. So, Yeah, well, I, I hope I'll be able to keep going as long as yourselves are going with the blogs and stuff like that because but I think it's like just to have something else to do as well away, away from playing poker, you know? Yeah. Um, and like it interests me when I'm writing this out and I, I just like to give my story of... Um, my poker experiences, but it's not just poker experiences either. It's my traveling experiences and my my just just general life experience. Like, like I, I'm just a normal Joe Soap. Do you know what I mean? I'm nobody special, never was. And now, like in the last two years, especially, like I've hit a lot of big results with poker, both live and online. And I, I just want to tell people that read my blog, um, basically how I've gone about it and what I've achieved but it's all down to working hard you have to work your ass off to get this like you know it's not going to just come to you and just be handed to you into your paw like you know yeah I think one of the lovely things about blog writing and it's something Darren and I have shared over the years is how at the very least and whether people like it or not or what response you get and it's lovely when you get positive responses yeah. uh, or someone comes up to you in a poke room and says I read your last blog and I really enjoyed it it's a lovely thing to kind of think well years from now I'll look back on it and I'll have a, a sort of a dear diary or I'll have a very kind of clear sense of what I was doing through those years and it's, an account of where my mind was at like I think the other thing Darren and I share is we, we look back on old blogs and think oh my god what donkeys we were because you'd be talking <laughs> through the hands you'd have been playing then and going oh god we were terrible back then <laughs> yeah we'll see that's the other side of it like I've got three young kids and like um, with my blog I want them to be able to read back over this when they're, when they're adults and they're married and they're their own kids and stuff like that, you know? So exactly. as, as you said, it's like, it's like a diary as well at the same time, isn't it? Yeah, very yeah. much so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if I was David, I'd be worried about Hunter Reed in the future, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, just on that, uh, the W Coop there, actually, there's a good story there to that. Um, I, I was actually, it was the Super Tuesday... And um, it, like it's a thousand dollar buy-in, and I, I was running quite well leading up to this, and I, I remember I was playing the MPN above in Dublin, uh, and I, I left the MPN on the Sunday, and W Coop was after starting on the Sunday, and I, I was on my way home, and I said, look, do you know what? I, I'm going to jump into Super Tuesday. I'm just going to buy into it, and see how it goes. So I was sitting at home on Monday evening, and. 
I said, look, I'll sell. I'll sell 50%. That's what I'll do. So I put a trade up on the Irish poker boards. And I've always had, I never really had a problem in selling. I've always sold in the past and with success, like, you know. So I go along, I stick the trade up and had my markup, everything done, posted it. So turn off the computer, left it, like this would have been open maybe six, seven o'clock in the evening. So I checked it then the following morning and there was no replies. So I say, what the fuck is going on here? Like, so I said, he says, you know what? No, fuck them. I said, I'm going to take it. <laughs> so I deleted the trade. Right? Yeah. And I, I get a message from Andrew Dwyer. So Andrew says, I, I seen your trade, Keith, but I went to reply and it was gone. So he sends, sends me the message on Facebook. Like, so he's there any chance I could take 5%? And I said, right, no problem. And he says, look, I'll give it to you at no markup. And it was like $55. Uh, so that was fine anyway. I went along anyway and I said, look, there's a satellite running here. It was an $11 buy-in with $10 rebuys. Um, so I said, I play that. So I play that. And I bink my ticket for like 31 bucks. And then I go along and I, I get heads up and we do a heads up deal for like 240k. And uh, <laughs> Legend King gets a return of like 12, 12.5k for his 55 wow. bucks. Yeah. And he said, I, I can remember it popped up in a Facebook in the memories there recently. And <laughs> I, I shared it. And immediately, I, oh no, I think it was like Andrew replied to it. Thanks very much for my car keys, <laughs> you know. <laughs> like, like that. I think them stories are absolutely brilliant. When people buy small pieces of action, like fifty-five bucks, and he tur- he gets turned into like twelve and a half k, like you know. Yeah, yeah, that's the dream, all right, for people when they're buying. I think. Yeah, like it, it was funny actually because like you, you know. I actually had people there that were reporting around the place that oh, Keith went to Vegas with his tw- with his two hundred and forty k and blew the lot, like you know. I, it's just that wasn't bad. true. None of it was true. It was actually <laughs> my 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 father in law came back to me and said that he met somebody in town and said that you were going to Vegas and you blew your money. Small town Ireland is brilliant for that kind of stuff. <laughs> like a lot of fellas said to me afterwards. What the hell are you doing going, going back to BRS or going to BRS when you're after winning this money? Because the way I look at it is any profits I make, I can spend as I wish. And I always had a problem with bankroll management. I was, you know, you could have a couple of grand sitting in the account there and you just jump in playing the bigger games. I, that was always a weak point for me was bankroll management. So in that sense, like for me, it just works out perfect. Well, Keith, we wish you further success. I have to say, it's lovely to hear somebody speak so honestly about their experience as somebody who's staked in such a positive light as well, because obviously Dara and I, years ago and for several years, ran a staking company of our own with Dara Davey and Jason Tompkins. And I hope that the guys who came through our stable as well had a similar experience to the one you're describing where the pressure was taken off, there was coaching and, and that kind of thing. And, and it, it is definitely an area of the game that I think uh, is, is not understood by a lot of people. So it, it's lovely to hear you speak so frankly and so positively about it. Yeah, well, well like, see, like, as you know yourselves, like, you can pay anything from, like, 180 bucks an hour up to, like, 400 bucks an hour for coaching. Like, like we're getting it all for free inside in BRS, like, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Dara charges, like, a grand an hour or so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Well, I, 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 I get his coaching for free as well if I want it when I just jump in with the RS. <laughs> you know, that's, well, that's the good parks of it. Like. Absolutely. Well, look, as I said, we wish you all the best with the, the future uh, pokering about uh, online and live. And also, uh, best of luck as well with the blog. Uh, they're going to be keen. Uh, I'll put up a little post at the end of this, maybe letting people know where they can find your blog, and uh, and I hope they check it out. Yeah, and don't forget to follow me at Keith underscore Cummins on Twitter. <laughs> there you go. Well done, Keith. All right, guys, that's great. Thanks Thank a lot, Keith. We're joined now by a man who has 1.7 million in live caches stretching back over 20 years, including a 600k second place finish, 2005 Monte Carlo Millions, uh, famously losing heads up to none other than Phil Ivey. He is the man behind BRS or Bankroll Supply Staking, the largest poker staking company out there. He is, of course, Paul Action Jackson. Paul, welcome to the show. Hi, David. Pleasure to be here. Can I just say, by the way, it's, it's BR Staking now. We've renamed ourselves. Oh, okay. Good, nice branding. Yeah, yeah. Get the get the plug in as well. Well played. Absolutely. As David mentioned in the intro, your biggest score came in the 25k Monte Carlo Millions where you lost heads up to Phil Ivey. What are your abiding memories of that event? Um, feeling like a scared sheep when he asked me <laughs> how many chips I had when I bought him. Literally, I, was, I could literally feel the sweat dripping down both sides of my arm, from under my arms. It was literally terrifying, and uh, that's my abiding memory. I mean, going afterwards with him at drinking and uh, talking about that. <laughs> well, for those of you out there who have never seen this, well, I, firstly, I can't imagine there's too many poker players who haven't seen this amazing bit of footage. It's such a plush uh, environment you're in. It's the proper James Bond sort of uh, yeah. uh, bit of TV yeah. footage, and there is a famous hand from that where uh, heads up against Ivy. Ivy raised uh, the button with Queen Eight of Hearts, and you caught with six five off. Flop came Jack Jack Seven with one heart. Uh, you checked, and he bet eighty k, just under half pot. Uh, with your backdoor straight draw, you decided, okay, well maybe use this Action Jackson uh, reverse <laughs> tell, and you made it one hundred and eighty k. Ivy with his two backdoors uh, clicked it to three hundred twenty k, and then testing Ivy once more. Somehow you found another click to four hundred seventy k out of your eight hundred fifty k stack. Somehow, and I do stress, somehow Ivy put you in. And it ends up being one of the most famous hands, I think, in the history of uh, televised poker. What was going through your mind through all those clicks and all those moves, given that the sweat was dripping down your hands and you considered yourself scared money? There was only two things that went through my mind. Well, the first thing was, if he actually knew if he actually knew me in any way, shape or form with the way I played poker, he never would have continued in the hands. <laughs> <laughs> he never, ever, there was literally, not every single person who was there watching who knew me, Every single one of them was, he's 100% got it. He's 100% got it because he could never do this without having it. Um, and at the time, there's only two things that went through my mind. The first one was, what would I do if I had it? <laughs> if I actually had it, what, what would I do? And I, and I did what I thought I'd do if I had it, given who I was playing against. If I was playing against a, an unsophisticated player, I probably would have just flatted his four bet. But against someone of his quality, I thought if I had it, I wouldn't do that. So I tried to do what I thought I'd have. What I would do if I actually had the hand I was trying to represent. And the only other thing that went through my mind was, please fold, please fold, please fold. <laughs> That's brilliant. I came on the scene 10 years after you and was a voracious reader as I struggled to learn the are game. You, are you trying to say I'm old? Well, no, in fairness, I started very late, so I think I might be older than you. <laughs> are you sure? I struggled to learn the game in the era before training videos and solvers. I think it's fair to say that most of the literature at the time was pretty poor in comparison to what's out there today. I do, however, remember reading your strategy articles and regularly having my mind blown. 
one piece that sticks out as a real eureka moment for me was a piece you wrote on poor equity and sunken cost fallacy. Two concepts I believe aren't even that widely understood by poker players nowadays. Do you think your pre-poker background in finance contributed to you being ahead of the curve conceptually? Um, I, I don't know. There's been an element of that. I've always been attracted by and interested in and good with numbers. I think the, I think the, the more I think the thing that gave me the biggest edge back in those days was that. I'm exceptionally logical. I think with a very, very logical mind, probably has caused me to have the two ex-wives that I've had because I'm more logical than emotional. Um, and for me, poker is logic. And most people would be way better and be way more profitable if they fought in logical terms rather than trying to follow just basic strategy because a lot of people don't fully understand the strategy they're trying to follow and end up just guessing. Whereas if they actually use logic, to make their decisions, whilst obviously being aware of and incorporating the various strategies that other people and that are generally used, which would always be incorporated within that logical framework, they would make better decisions than trying to follow a strategy they don't fully understand. And I've always, at the time, there was no strategy to follow because there was no information anywhere about poker. So like, what I used to say was when I when I first started playing poker, um, I played a lot of poker in, uh, in a casino in Warsaw and there were players there who used to make mistake after mistake after mistake. And I used to do the same as well when I first started, obviously the same as everybody else does. But you learn from your mistakes, but not everybody can learn at the same rate from their mistakes. And I used to, when I used to do seminars on poker occasionally, I used to, without mentioning any names, I used to um, compare them to cows in a field. If you've got cows in a field with an electric fence around it, the cow will go up against the electric fence, get electrocuted, walk away. It'll do it again, it'll do it again, it'll do it again. After five or six times, the cow stops going on the fence because it knows it's going to get electrocuted. But these players, 20 years later, when they're back in the casino, they're doing the same things because they don't learn. <laughs> I love this. But if, if, if they followed it with logic, they would have actually learned. It's, it's quite, it, 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 for me, poker is all about logic. It's, it's about learning different ways of assimilating information, analysing that information, and then make, making a logical decision based on that information. And the logical decision obviously would incorporate all the various strategies you or somebody else ought to be following. But if you do it on a logic basis rather than a strategy basis, I think people, a lot of people, not the top players, obviously, because they, 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 they obviously already... Poker players back then, which was probably how old was I then? Probably 20, maybe about 86, 87. Um, they could only learn from their own mistake because nobody would tell them what to do of, of analysing and assimilating information. And no one can teach you how to analyse information. You, you can either do it or you can't. If you haven't got the brain to do it, you'll never be able to do it. Then you end up just guessing. <laughs> well, Paul, these days you're probably best known as the man behind the staking company I mentioned at the top, BRS Bankroll Staking. I've done it right this time, haven't I? You've done it right this time, yes. Excellent stuff. See, not like the bovine brain. See, I, I, I've learned. <laughs> you learned. I've learned. <laughs> Uh, what prompted you to start BRS in the first place and uh, how has the whole experience been for you? We spoke to Keith Cummins earlier in this episode and he's had a great experience with you all together and, and really champions uh, what you've done for him and his game and the opportunities he's gotten. How has it been for you? Um, well, to be honest, it was it, it literally started with me just backing a couple of mates on a, and I used to use an Excel spreadsheet to uh, keep record of what they were doing. Um, one, of, one of those players at the time was Sam Trickett. But his his variance was a bit too high for me at one point, and he and he obviously got very he obviously got very famous very quickly. But uh, it literally started in a very small way with no intention whatsoever of doing anything bar just backing a couple of mates. Um, and then it grew from that, and it grew from that, and it just kept growing. And we've now got like a, a really big organisation in place with the training tools, videos, getting in more specialised coaches to teach people online and live. Um, 
the, the big thing that I like about it is community, and that's the most important thing for me in terms of community. And if you, you, okay, you can't help. I mean, we've got 250 odd players at the minute, and it's always going to be impossible to have 250 people all get on, and that's always going to be the case. And whilst individual people can have arguments, you always find certain individuals who, for want of a better word, you'd call a bad egg, people who are just going to cause aggro all the time or cause problems. And anyone that we get like that, and we've got a lot of it, we've had so many players come through us because we obviously, what the way it works with the staking companies, I'm sure a lot of people know, is you'll take, you'll get like, when you're offering to give free money about, there's no shortage of a queue of people saying yes, please. And so you do your best to identify which ones are worth staking. And obviously that's a lot easier now than it was before. Now you've got shark scope and all the various um, things you can use to determine someone's ability and their past experience. And you get the ones that you think are worth staking. And obviously that process can be refined and you'll get better at it as you get more experience at it. And then you start staking them. And for whatever reason, you might have got it wrong or they might have misled you or they might have lied or they might go on, have, have tilt issues and, and have, been, have been winning well previously or whatever it might be. And you keep the good ones and you get rid of the bad ones. And that's an ongoing process where effectively what is hoped is that your, your ongoing pool of long-term players is a good, solid, reliable set of players. And so within that, if we had a player who was, for want of a better word, as I said before, a bad egg, I'd get rid of them, even if they were a winning player. I wouldn't risk having someone upset the community just to make a little bit extra money. Because although obviously making money is very, very important, the community aspect of it is also extremely important. And I don't want people playing as individuals. I want everyone supporting each other. Everyone genuinely happy when somebody else wins. I remember Jeff Kimber once uh, had a discussion with someone where one of his mates was on a final table and somebody said to him, Oh, you're supporting him because you've got, you got a saver with him. You've got 10%. And his answer was, no, I don't need to be financially rewarded for supporting my mates. And this is, a, and I operate back beyond staking in the same sort of way. I, I don't, I don't want, I want people to genuinely support their fellow people, to genuinely help each other, to discuss hands and make each other better and help each other improve. Not because you've got a financial interest in, with it, although everyone obviously has because they want to get better at poker. But I want people to support each other because they're friends, because they like each other, because they want each other to do well. And that sort of helps with everybody else. It, that, that hopefully will help to improve the overall quality of everyone because it's, it's, a, it's a happier and more enjoyable learning environment for them. It's like a family. It's like a family. And that's, the way, that's the way I want it. And that's why I want to keep it. And if that means, as I say, if that means getting rid of a winning player, we'll do it. We'll get rid of it. Speaking of family, your son, Ben, is also a top class player in his own right and is involved in BRS. Surprisingly enough, there aren't that many poker father-son combinations around. How did you feel when you realised Ben intended to follow in your footsteps? Um, it was a, it was, it, it's like a sweet and sour, to be honest. Um, I never encouraged any. I mean, I've got four boys, one girl. Uh, I've never encouraged any of them to actually play poker specifically. Um, the only one who actually does, well, Kelly plays poker a little bit. She won the uh, ladies' event in Birmingham a few years back. Uh, of, of my sons, Ben is the only one who plays poker. The other two or three, the other three have sort of dabbled now and again, but they're not really interested. But Ben's the only one who actually followed it. Um, I'm, it's obviously nice to know that we, we can go to live events together and we'll be with each other, we can discuss, and it, 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 it aids with the father-son relationship that we can talk about hands, and and obviously it helps me get better as a poker player as well because I'm sort of old school and he's new school. So I, I can get information and ideas and, and bounce things off him, and he, uh, he presumably does off me, although most of what I teach him is small balling and pot controlling. Uh, but, but that helps me get, become a better player as well. That's the upside of it. Then the downside of it is when it goes wrong, and obviously when you're playing poker tournaments, it goes wrong way more than it goes right, uh, I feel bad for him. And then when he feels bad because I brought him into poker, that makes me feel bad like I've almost done something wrong. But that, that's just the 
the uh, variance of playing poker, I guess. But that's the downside of it for me. Is I feel bad for him when something bad happens to him, or he gets unlucky, or whatever, when it all starts going wrong in a game, or if you're winning bad. Well, to return to staking, BRS is unusual in that you also stake players in big live events. I'm conscious you, you mentioned the, the variance uh, of someone like Sam Trickett, although I can imagine that's a particularly extreme yeah. example. Um, but most stables tend to steer clear of, of the live stuff. I know when Darren and I uh, did a fair bit of staking uh, for about five or six years, uh, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd put some live stuff in there. You'd want the guy to have a shot. Some guys were particularly good at live, so they, they were certainly worth giving a crack in uh, in in the real world. But uh, I, I know it is a major selling point for players. They, they do love to aspire to those big live scores. So giving them that carrot or giving them that selling point that BRS does is a, is, a, is a very appealing or alluring quality. Was it a conscious decision early on to use this kind of carrot of live poker as a differentiator from other stables? It, it didn't... It, 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 well, it, it, it was part of the plan at the start. Once we, once we started actually properly taking on players, it was always the plan because we, we've always known that all poker players, no matter how good they are online, all poker players want to win live events. Because when you sat at home and you win an online tournament, well done. When you win a tournament live, that's way more glory. And I think players, a lot of players like that. And that, 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 that's probably the downfall of a lot of players who could make money, for example, playing sit-and-goes or whatever it might be, but they want to play tournaments because they want that pot of gold and they want that glory at the end of it so they can hold up a trophy and say, look what I've done. They might not necessarily think of it directly in those terms, but inwardly, subconsciously, I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Uh, and so we always wanted to give players the ability to play live. So we always gave them the option that when they were in profit or if they wanted to play satellites to play live events, they could use the profit, the funds, to go and play certain live events because we always knew that poker players always want to play live. The live ones want to play live and they don't want to be sat at home playing online. But the online pit players, who are obviously way, generally way, way better than the live players, they want to actually go and play live as well. It's more sociable and it's more enjoyable, I think, playing live than, than playing online. We've, got, we've now got coaching online for live events by, from James Aikenhead and Simon Dedman, who are obviously two great live players who have got a lot of experience and knowledge they can pass on. And then the players will hopefully get a better A from those coaching sessions. And secondly, actually implementing that and, and experiencing the other good players. A lot of Germans here obviously all seem to be very good. Uh, so that they'll gradually improve as players. And hopefully the, sort of, the, the EV for us from players taking part in these live events will actually gradually and gradually increase. As our players will get better, we'll get them more coaching, they'll have more experience of it. And hopefully that will just keep rolling and rolling and building and building. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of Simon Dedman's, I have to say. Uh, followed his career very closely and uh, yeah. any help any of your guys are getting from him, I'm sure it's hugely... I'm sure it's hugely valuable, yeah. Listen, Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really wanted to devote an episode to the theme of uh, staking and, and, and the world of it because, you know, it's a, it's an area that fascinates people. It's obviously an area that's got bigger and bigger. You have um, rivals in that uh, space with uh, Bitby and all the other guys. Uh, so, th- you know, you're not just the only staking firm out there. Lots of guys uh, trying to uh, coach other players, stake them in games, make lots of money for themselves and hopefully develop the player uh, as well so you were the perfect person to have on this week and I really appreciate you sharing your story absolute pleasure thanks a lot Paul it's time for Ian Simpson with the news hello everybody welcome back to the news uh, the LA Poker Classic was this week's biggest live tournament uh, Mark McDonnell managed a fourth place finish in this event for $319,000 Toby Lewis uh, from England managed a second place finish for $600,000 the winner Dennis Bleeden took home a lovely $1 million. What a life. 
What a life. Just a million for one tournament. Really happy to see Mark get a, a, a big result like that. Mark's had uh, quite a few crossbars to big results. He came second in a World Series event a couple of years ago as well. I know he's desperate for the uh, to take home a title, but at the same time, 300k score, pretty tasty. Uh, Darren and I are actually going to catch up with him at the Irish Open, hopefully have him on a future episode. Ah, oh, very nice, very nice. Uh, meanwhile, in the online world, all eyes have been on the Unibet Online series, or at least mine have been, disbelievingly staring at my 42nd place on the leaderboard while Lappin is sitting in 8th place. I'm kind of glad we didn't have a prop bet in the end after on this. I didn't want to take your money, I just thought it was candy from a baby type mm, situation. Right, yeah, yeah, no bum hunting, right? Oh. <laughs> uh, Fellow ambassador expert Bergie took second place in event 38 for just over a thousand euros. Former newsman Dara Davy final tilled both the high events, and uh, there was another result from another ambassador. Uh, big buy-in. Oh, you're going to take the piss out of me now? Oh, okay. Oh, I see how this is working. Even though you know you haven't managed to get any results whatsoever, you're going to take out the piss out of the fact that I won event 42, the 25 cent rebuy. Really, the one that everyone wants to win. So was that a was that a big score? It was a big. I think I got 90 quid. <laughs> that's pretty good for 25 cents it got me fair. out for the day thanks for asking <laughs> well, you, I have to be honest I, I was one tabling the 25 cent rebuy for about an hour last night and I did wonder what my life has become <laughs> oh sad time uh, anyway we're also on the front page of poker news uh, Jason Glatzer wrote a lovely piece about Unibet specifically about how our island based ambassador Dara Carney is finally able to play on our client um it's also to celebrate the fact that Unibet are also sponsoring the Irish Poker Rankings with a 10k prize pool. Uh, David, I believe you spoke to Kieran Cooney on the Irish Poker Rankings about that? I did. So, uh, without further ado, thank you very much for the news and let's hear from Kieran. Well, I'm delighted to say that Unibet Poker has just launched in Ireland. You probably remember us mentioning it on the show last week or have seen one of the various press releases this past week as well. To celebrate that fact, Unibet Poker are the new sponsor of the Irish Live Poker Rankings for 2018. Well, the man behind those rankings is Kieran Cooney, and I'm happy to say that Kieran is here to tell me all about it. We had him on all the way back in season one. Uh, Kieran, welcome back to the Chip Race. Thank you very much, David. Good to talk to you. Kieran, well, first things first. What are the Irish live poker rankings? How long have they been around and what events do they cover? Well, basically, I've been doing it. It's a yearly ranking event and it's been done by myself since 2013. Um, basically, it covers any live event in Ireland that has either a 200 euro buy-in or higher or else has 15 grand guaranteed, generally working at about 80 to 90 events per calendar year. OK, so that's about maybe uh, two a week on average. I guess the festivals will be a bigger cluster of them around then. And then you've got your, your sort of uh, fits end of the month and things like that. Yeah, it, it, it can be clustered sometimes. I mean, the upcoming month now, March, will be very busy because there's a, three weeks of poker in City West, encompassing about 19 events. Some months can be quieter. There might be only half a dozen events. But as I said, over the course of the year, you're, you're looking at about 80 to 90 events. Great stuff. And finally, Kieran, Unibet have put 10k in prizes into the kitty this year. Uh, how are they being divvied out? Yeah, well, the Unibet have been very kind to sponsor it for 2018 with prizes going to the winners. Um, they've done an overall prize for the first five at the end of the year for the calendar year. Um, the winner getting a 2k package to a main event, a Unibet Open main event. Second to fifth then are getting a entry into a UK tour with a package of €500 Euro package which will encompass buy-in and travelling expenses. Um, they've also then decided just to encompass everybody to do seasonal prizes which will run during the seasons um, with the winner getting again a €500 Euro UK tour package 
Um, second, third, fourth, and fifth will all get entry into Unibet's flagship Sunday game, uh, the Supernova. And then every every season there'll be six other random players in the top fifty picked out who will also get entry into the Supernova every Sunday. Well, I'd say I like that random factor. Obviously, uh, you want your rankings to be merit based largely, but that kind of keeps it interesting for people who uh, who maybe are further down the rankings. Well, it's inclusive. It just keeps it gives everyone a chance to win the prize if they haven't started the year or they missed part of the year. They still have a, an opportunity to win a prize throughout the year. Yeah, great stuff. Well, listen, Garen, thank you so much for stopping by. I know the collecting and collating all that data can be thankless work so uh, on behalf of Irish poker players and of course Unibet Poker thank you very much for your efforts in bringing another exciting aspect to the Irish live poker scene no problem my pleasure and good luck to everyone at the tables for the year thanks Kieran. For a strategy segment this week, we're going to look at a hand from the recent Unibet Open London. It's actually a hand that I was in the commentary box uh, for with Darrow Kearney while Diva was playing. Yeah, indeed, we were commentating on this, and actually, you criticised Diva's play in this hand. Excuse me. I, I didn't criticise her, but we were co- we're commentators. I didn't criticise her play. We were talking about the merits and demerits of her play. Is this real, guys? I think you kind of did, David. Um, this is a little awkward. Uh, well, yeah, not a little, but a lot. Right, so just, yeah, just leave. Just leave. Just leave. <laughs> I guess you have to. I leave think me, me and Dara can wrap this up. Yep. Okay, Dara, maybe you'll <laughs> take over without me. Yep. Okay, David. I guess I'm going to have to take over the hosting duties. Um, <laughs> I'm really being thrown out. Yes, yeah? David. Sorry, just leave, please. Yeah, just leave, please. <laughs> Bye. Don't slam the door. Okay, so Tyva, um, tell us about this hand. Uh, so on the feature table. Um, I arrived, I think, with around 27,000 ships, and the blinds were um, 200, 400. And it's not been going great for me so far. Uh, I just below starting stack, uh, not not been above starting stack so far, and just like, yeah, it's not been a great day just running into hands. So yeah, we sit down and I'm in the big blind, the king nine off. Okay, so it folds around to the the villain in this hand. What seat did he open from? Uh, he was actually UTG1, I think. UTG1, okay. So he opens to 800, which is yeah, a min raise? Yeah, raises, and uh, everyone falls down to me. And uh, obviously I played this guy before for a couple of levels previously. And his opening range, I'd say, is not on the tighter side. It's, it's definitely like likes to playing hands. So that's one of the reasons I elected to defend King-9 off. There's some of the players I would fold if uh, they playing optimally like UTG range mm-hmm. but I didn't think he's that kind of player yeah that's 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 a very good point you're, you're getting an amazing price because it's a min raise even yeah. though he's from UTG you know we have a hand like king nine it's a pretty strong hand if the flop comes king high we can definitely continue because he'll bet to represent mm-hmm. the king almost sure. certainly so so okay so you call and then what, I call on the and flop? Uh, the flop comes king high so to be specific king of spades, two of diamonds, and six of spades. So it is a flush draw there. Okay. And you don't have a spade? I don't have a spade. Yeah. Okay. So in this situation, I guess you, you, you're pretty much just always going to check the flop. Yeah, uh, always going to check the flop and obviously always going to call. Yeah. <laughs> I so, got top pair and, you know, like pretty decent kicker. And I, I expect my uh, opponent to see that majority of the time so King High board is repping his range. So I check and he bets 1000, which is like 50% of the pot at that point. Yeah. 
and uh, yeah, I just go. Yeah, I think it's a very easy call. I mean, years ago, people used to check raise these spots more. Uh, people placed far more emphasis on protecting against flush draws, but the reality is flush draws are such a small part of the range. There's no reason to focus exclusively on that. With a hand like King-9, you tend to be either very far ahead uh, like even if he has a hand as strong as queens, for example, we're miles ahead or very far behind if he has, for example, ace king. Mm-hmm, um, so there's no there's no point in inflating the pot. If we raise, we're mostly just going to flush out the hands that we're ahead of and the, uh, be, be in trouble against the hands that continue. So um, it's better to just check call, keep his range wide. Yeah, and especially against this player, I played a hand before where he uh, just see bet small pocket pair on the queen jack king board before. So he is seed betting super wide. So yeah, and then we go to the turn, and the turn is uh, three of spades, uh, bringing three to the flush. And I check again, don't see any other play for me there, and uh, see what he does. And uh, he bets 2,400. Okay. So at this point I'm thinking, obviously he could have a king, he could have picked up a flush draw such as the ace of spades. He could have a draw with an ace x for a straight draw. And so basically, I, I believe this card gave him more equity, which he is happy to continue with. And obviously, he's got a king, he's continuing as well. So there's still quite a few bluffs in his range and strong hands. Like you said, I'm either ahead or behind still. Yeah. Uh, so I just select to call for that reason. Yeah, I think it's useful in the in these spots to think about people's uh, value ranges and bluff ranges. Mm-hmm. Specifically, when the spade hits, he can be bluffing on the flop with the with a hand, uh, for example, that has the ace of spades in it because it has it has the backdoor flush draw. When the spade comes on the turn, he's going to barrel those one spade hands. Maybe it had the ace of spades or the queen of mm-hmm. spades. Exactly, queen of spades. Yeah. Also playing exactly the same. So on a spade turn, his bluffing range becomes wider and his uh, his value range um, therefore becomes smaller part of his range. He could obviously have the flush, but that's still kind of unlikely. He can have a speed in some other way, but a lot of those hands would actually check behind now for pot control. So yeah, I think his, his, his range is super wide here. He has a lot of bluffs, so we can't give up with, with our kings. I think I probably would fold a six at this point. Oh yeah, uh, I agree. Because, you know, an eight has come, the flush has got there, and the yeah. six is more ways of being beaten on the river anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I would have to think about hands like nines, tens, jacks, etc. Um, whether I was going to fold or, or not. But I think with top pair, we almost certainly have to continue, especially against a player like this. I guess also another interesting thing for me was that he just bet half the pot again. It just didn't really feel like he's got a big hand in like betting for protection, such as, for example, he had ace king with space I just feel he would bet much more mm-hmm. on that turn so it just didn't feel like a very strong hand yeah. uh, it just really felt like a drawing hand to me at that point and I was just like yeah, happily called again it's a very minor point but uh, the fact that we don't have a spade means that there are more uh, one spade type hands that he can have that, yeah. that he continues to keep bluffing with yeah. so if we had a spade that would be less that would cut down his bluff the bluff part of his range somewhat but because we don't have a spade it means that his bluffs are, are still wider so so you did call and we saw the eight of diamonds on the river mm-hmm. um, and then what happened so i checked again as that was the plan all the way unless obviously i uh even if i improved i checked because i want him to continue battling this flush draws and you know like ace five kind of hand which also bricked on the river and so i checked and he bet again like 50 percent of the pot so now so now we're in a really tough spot because we are just beating a bluff essentially um, yeah, I mean, I was, yeah, as you saw, I was tanking for ages and I felt it was a very close spot. And I mean, 
Yeah, I was not loving it. Yeah, I think in this spot, if if, if we were playing against somebody who, who was playing super balanced, we, we now have to give up uh, because yeah. we have a lot of stronger hands in our range. We have sets, we have better kings, we have flushes. Probably don't have too many two pair, but we have enough stronger hands that we can now fold a king without being exploited. Yeah. He's triple barreled, so he has shown considerable strength. And at the end of the day, we do have a king with a pretty mediocre kicker. Mm-hmm. Um, so... On balance, I think we should now probably fold the river. If you want to sometimes call with your kings, I think a decent way to split your range is it's a good thing for us on the turn not to have a spade because he has more bluffs when we don't have a spade. But it's a bad thing for us now on the river that we don't have a spade because if we had a spade, we'd be blocking his flushes, which which are part of his value range. Yeah, like if you had something like king, jack, jack of spades, for example. Yeah, exactly. So... Yeah, so on balance, I think I would I would now fold the river. Yeah, I mean, looking back, uh, I think I should have folded as well. I mean, be, what do you think was our bottom calling range king-wise, like kicker? Yeah, it's an interesting one because um, we probably do have to call some kings. Um, yeah, definitely. And so I guess at the end of the day, there's not too much difference between king-queen, king-jack and the hand that you had in this spot, King-9, because mm-hmm. they're all just beating bluffs and they're losing to all of the value hands. Um, yeah. He's not going to bet any, bet any hand for value that King-Queen is is beating, but but King-8 isn't beating. So I think if we wanted to, to, to call some kings, it comes down to whether we have a spade or not. Yeah, that's a very good point, actually. Yeah, so I think if we have a king with a spade kicker, then we can, we can call and, and without a spade, just yeah. fold. I mean, yeah, I thought about it for a while and I just, yeah, obviously I felt I could fold, but I didn't think he was balanced player and I guess that's one of the reasons to like just push me into the call of, or yeah, I guess looking back I should have folded. Okay, thank you very much, David. Thank you. We're joined now by high stakes sit and go legend, Twitch poker superstar and 888 ambassador, the man they call Tonka, Parker Talbot. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, gentlemen. It's good to be here. Parker, we first met at the Irish Open, I think it was 2013. You were in the process of uh, clearing out your stable and we were kind enough to take Irish pro Kevin Clean off your hands. Uh, Yeah, that was a while ago, huh? (laughs) It certainly was. Before we get into things you are more famous for, staking has been a running theme on the show this week. Uh, What's your experience been like on that side of the game and what do you think of these super stables they have nowadays? Um... So I staked, obviously, like, as you, as you know, just said, I, I staked, uh, I think the most guys I ever had was like 12 guys around 2012-ish, I guess. You know, I had some small stakes guys, then I had like three guys that played kind of high. Um, but yeah, that was, uh, that was a time, I, I didn't, I didn't hate staking, I didn't love staking. I think that staking, for the most part, on a small scale is kind of a mistake for most people, the, most, the way that most people do it. Um, and I didn't really enjoy it towards the end of it. Uh, I don't. I don't know, man. I don't really have any opinions on it. If you if you enjoy steak, if you like it, then then you do it. You do you. You know. You you guys you enjoy it. You guys obviously have a stable still, right? Uh, no. To be honest, we we kind of got out of it as well. Yeah. Did you? Yeah. So then you guys might have had a similar experience as me. I, at the end of it, I just felt like it was a pretty massive hassle for the for the returns on it. Yeah. Um, and you know, you stake some friends, and that can go back poorly as well. Um, you stake people that end up scamming you. I didn't end up getting scammed. I had one guy quit poker while in a decent amount of makeup. That was obviously unfortunate. And at the end, I was just over it and just wanted to get out. So I ended up selling a bunch of makeup. And I'm sure you guys made money on Kevin Colleen. Yeah. Uh, he was very solid. And I mean, I coached him up a decent amount and took him from, took him from the low stakes at the time. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, I, we I definitely know, got man. the best of Kevin. I think, uh, yeah, we, we 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 let you do all your brilliant coaching, and then we nabbed him at the right. Yeah, time. and then and then he all of a sudden started the heater. Yeah, that's right. I remember. I, I have him with another guy as well, actually. Like <laughs> another guy that I had that I sold in like thirty k makeup, and he just banked out of it in like three days or something. Uh, <laughs> well, as David mentioned in the intro, you're a bit of a sitting goal legend, uh, grinding the very highest buy-ins, um, including grinding Supernova Elite in seven months often playing over 300 games a day for much of your career. David and I both played a lot of sit and goes in our early career. It's actually how we first encountered each other. I know you switched to MTTs after, to use your words, stars killed sit and goes, but what was the heyday of sit and goes like for you? Uh, was it was that what it was? Seven months? Is that the fastest I ever did it? That's what you claim to have done on a previous podcast, so unless you were telling fibs, <laughs> it is. No, 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 I thought it would be faster, honestly. Oh, maybe it was. Because I got... I think I got three were, million one year. You were triple, yeah. No, you were definitely triple supernova elite one year. I remember, so it has to be faster yeah, than seven yeah, months, so actually. Maybe, maybe not though. Maybe I just ramped up a lot in the end. It, it really depended on how much you wanted to play those at those times. But I mean, heyday was like, man, I could play. Uh, I played like two hundred dollar plus, like two three two hundred three hundred five hundred one k, and then two k and five k six max turbos when they ran. And man, you could play like I could I could play like four hundred games a day on like a three hundred dollar plus AVI sometimes. That was when you were really raking in the VPPs. Oh, wow. Yeah. You probably need the VPPs at that buying level just to flatten out the variance a little bit. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I know. I was uh, losing player pre-rake back for most of the most of the games. Well, I get that. That was probably the case for a lot towards, of people. Towards the end, at least. Yeah. Well, look, the innovation of speed poker, rush poker, zoom poker formats obviously hurt game liquidity in cash games. Uh, similarly, the Blast jackpot spin-and-go format has had a massive impact on sit-and-goes. What are your feelings on game innovations of this sort? Are you open and enthusiastic to these new formats, or are you a bit more of a purist seeing as that's where you made so much of your early money? Um, I don't know if purist is the word that, that would like best describe that. I think that you know a lot of these new formats and games are lower edge games if you will like you know just like they i think that's pretty obvious and pretty clear and i think that you know the main uh proponent poker stars behind bringing these games out is you know pretty pretty open with their with their current strategy which is you know fuck the regs and let's make uh, the games as as non-profitable as possible for anyone who's trying to make money in them uh in order to circulate the money on the site and keep people from going bust so fast which is i think that's like relatively obvious that that is you know the game plan um and that could be the game plan of lots of sites and i i feel like you know and end goal you know maybe maybe all poker sites realize that that's the only way that they're ever gonna you know survive for a long time i don't know the logistics behind it i'm just saying what i think that their strategy is um so yeah and i think most of these games reflect that so i'm not a really big fan of them i've never played a single spin and go max i've played maybe 20 spinning goes lifetime um i've played this weird power-up game literally once and did not enjoy it uh so i, I mean i'm not a big fan of the of the new the new takeaways I, I i like the old school so i guess i am like a purist in like the sense that i like just like a vanilla six max sit and go you know i like a vanilla nine man sit and go and i can get behind you know maybe some knockouts thrown in there but this spinning go max bullshit where like you can win <laughs> and like second place somehow gets more money than you like 
I'm not I'm not about that life, you know. I'm not I'm not looking to play for an hour, you know, fucking crush my opponents, then spin a fucking wheel and it pops <laughs> out that I get two X my money and somehow the guy who got second has gotten like eight X. Like fuck no. I'm not I'm not doing that. No thanks, not for me. Like we obviously came up in a very different time for online poker and where it was possible to pretty much grind up a role through a sort of a low variance format. Do you think that's possible anymore for like guys who are starting out now to just sort of come at the bottom and grind up a role? Uh, I think it's definitely harder than it used to be. But honestly, I've been because I've been playing some six max singles and you know whenever they run, which is very 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 infrequently. And every now and then I'll like see a reg that I don't know. And he's playing okay and i'll look him up and i looked up a guy the other day and he's made like 180k in the last like year and a half of like without ever losing more than like five grand so i would say that there are definitely you know situations and spots where like you can probably do this but i think it's like way fucking harder now and i don't think that uh it's nearly as easy you have to study way more i think before like you could just have like a decent poker mind it's just like you know, get lucky a bunch and and kind of stumble into the into into a right into a correct strategy in a lot of ways. Like these days, I think it's like way more difficult. Even in like the lower stakes games, they're way tougher. And yeah, I just think like everything in general is a bit tougher. And uh, since moving to online MTTs, you've played a decent amount of high stakes. Uh, your biggest score to date was in Scoop Sunday Warm Up, where you got second for 109k. But there's been dozens of other good scores. What's your overall impression of the high stakes landscape? Landscape, and how do you rate yourself within it? It's crazy fucking hard, like crazy hard, man. Like the high stakes tournaments. Like I was, I, was, I streamed yesterday, and the stream was trying to get me to play uh, the daily five hundred, and it's just like an impossible tournament. It's just like ninety five percent just like high stakes crushers, and they're just in there swinging their 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 dinkies around and just absolutely going for it. You know, it's it's madness. But uh, but no, I think the high stakes scene in general is really fucking tough, and. You know, I'm doing a lot more studying these days than I have in previous years. I've always been more of like an intuition, go with the flow kind of player. Um, but I just don't think that, that that's sustainable, at least not for me uh, anymore. Um, I'm sure there are still guys that crush, you know, doing that kind of thing. But not me. I, I, need, I, need, I need to get on the study grind now because everyone else is doing it and everyone's just too good. I, I think I'm like, honestly, I don't know where I am. I, I, I always hate the question of like, where do you rate yourself? Who do you rate the top five players in the world are? Like I, I, I ask that question all the time on the stream and I just always say, I don't know. Nobody knows, you know, because so much about short term, midterm and even long term, like two year, two year time period results is just dominated by variance. You know, there are obviously people that, you know, play well, cause you know, you can play against them and know that you get crushed by them and know that they're smart and doing good things. But like, as like an outsider, just looking at the games, you might just think like, Oh my God, this guy won like, you know, $700,000 in online tournaments in the last year and a half. He must be a God. And like, you know, most of the time they are usually pretty fucking good, but uh, that could honestly just be variance. Like that's how crazy variance is in poker. Sure. Well, you know, I think that's a very wise answer. And uh, and speaking of wisdom, we've had your good friend Finn Hand on the show a couple of times. Uh, the first time all the way back in season one when he was just starting out on Twitch. Uh, I'll be honest, I was somewhat bemused by what he was even doing back then. I, I kind of figured he was wasting his time. Now I think the guys like Finton and yourself saw the future uh, in some sense. Uh, how confident were you that poker uh, was going to get as huge as it did on that platform? I wasn't insanely confident. I mean, I kind of stumbled into streaming um, just to like, you know, not 
really wanted to play cards too much anymore and then I just started streaming and I was just like okay this is like kind of fun let's do this for a little while and see what happens then you know that sort of just snowballed into you know 27 months later and here we are um but yeah I didn't really like look at it and be like whoa this is going to be a big platform for poker I need to get in on this before everybody else does I didn't really look at it like that um and I I didn't I didn't really you know have that kind of intuition but uh but it really has taken off yeah well you signed with uh 888 at the start of 2017 and after enjoying a couple of years as one of the biggest poker twitchers i think it's fair to say you are the sweariest of the big names on twitch and you come across as a very straight talker in fact i remember uh, talking about the whole twitch phenomenon at the start and at, the, at, at that point it was dominated in the poker landscape by Jamie Staples and Jason Somerville and people were saying well that's what everybody has to do now they have to be sort of nice couple of vanilla fellas <laughs> a couple of vanilla fellas yeah and then you seem to come out of left field were you were you surprised by how successful and how the whole thing took off not really to be honest I mean I still think uh to this day that I'm probably the best player that streams on Twitch you know in, in, in a high capacity I mean pretty close I think that Lex is you know pretty solid now but I think when I first started streaming like it wasn't really close at all like I think I'm like significantly better was a significantly better player than anyone streaming at the time um not to not firing shots at anybody I just think you know and I, I feel I feel like that became pretty apparent and while you said there might have been like this template for what a streamer looks like I think that we kind of like broke that I guess maybe um, and people realize that it's just like more enjoyable to watch someone who speaks their mind and you know plays a bit better poker. Yeah, I remember arguing at the time. I felt it was almost like the streetlight fallacy, where you know what you see under the under the streetlight is all you see, and you think that's all there is. But actually, it just that something else hadn't been tried yet. Authenticity as a content creator is is, is really key. He said. However, authenticity while being sponsored is a particularly difficult balance to strike. How easy has it been for you since you became a sponsored player? Um, yeah, Joey and I actually talked about a little bit about this. On his pot as well and uh, he uh, commended me for that as well and honestly I don't really think about it too much you know like obviously I, I don't I, I'm not like an over-the-top you know awful person so like I'm, I'm not like you know saying like homophobic or racist stuff or anything like that ever but I, I just kind of like tell it how I think it is you know um, and I think that uh, you know Doug did that as well uh, he, he's not sponsored obviously <clears throat> um, but I, I, I don't really think about it balancing I just I just feel like, you know, if you're just yourself and you're pretty straightforward and you're not, like, over the top, like, rude to anybody, which I tr really try not to be, I might come off as it sometimes, but, I mean, I think I'm a pretty genuine, I, I, I feel like I'm a nice person, so I don't... I don't really intend to ever hurt anyone's feelings. Speaking of Doug Polk, you also joined his upswing team in 2017 as a coach. Uh, how has that experience been? Ah, it's been good, you know. Uh, I haven't made any videos uh, for them in a few months, actually, and I'm scheduled to put some new ones out in about a month. So looking forward to doing that, especially like I was saying before, you know, I've been doing a lot of review recently. Uh, I've been doing a little bit of winning uh, in the last, you know, few weeks, so... I've got a lot of stuff, a lot of great content that we can go over, and I'm really looking forward to making those videos. I think it's going to be some really solid content in the uh, the Upswing Lab. Um, so, but it's been good, man. I like working with uh, Doug and Ryan. Um, been making a bunch of videos with Ryan, and obviously, I'm, I'm buddies with Doug. You know, we 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 talk about some shit sometimes, but he's kind of off in the crypto space at the moment. You know, he's not paying. He's not going too wild with poker, I don't think. And uh, you don't play much live poker, but last year you did participate in Poker Night in America's King of the Hill, where you beat our former guest, Phil Helmuth. What was nice. it like being on the end of Phil's wrath? Honestly, it was great, man. 
I think I said at one point, I mean, when I he overbet the turn and I called him with a flush shot, I think a straight shot, and I, he had trips and I hit the flush on the river and he just shoved and I called and he like stood up <laughs> and fucking walked around talking to himself and talking about how well he plays and how he's the best in the world and how he just does it to these kids every time. And I was just like, yes, this is a lifelong fucking dream completed right here, boys. This is it. I mean, I grew up watching Phil Hellmuth on fucking WPTs and WSOP doing his fucking whole act and just being an absolute donkey and then to fucking <laughs> get that done to you in real life in a $50,000 buy-in where you end up beating fucking Phil Hellmuth, the greatest poker player to ever live. Honestly, it was fucking awesome. <laughs> well, it was so good. Well, it sounds like it may have been one of your life goals, but in a recent interview for Poker News, you said that, and I quote, I'm not really a fan of goals, uh, that doing so sets you up for failure. I think that's a really interesting concept, actually. Something I think speaks to Dara and I as well in the way we approach poker. Can you elaborate on that idea? Um, I, I've always said that. That's just because like, I'm not like a... I'm not like a goal person, you know, and like, but like, I totally respect it. The people who are, and I totally understand and see the value of it. And I feel like, you know, the people who set goals might be more successful than other people, but I really feel like it depends on like the type of person you are, the kind of brain, the way your brain works. Um, and I've just never been someone who like keeps an agenda, you know, I remember they used to give us agendas in, in, uh, in school when I was young, you know, from, from grade one to grade 12. And they'd give you an agenda at the beginning of every year. And it's, this would be your agenda. Make sure that you, like, write everything in it, your homework and all this and that. And I'd throw it out on the first day, like, every every single year. Uh, and then I'd have, like, friends, you know, who, like, I had a f friend. She was she wrote, like, 15 things a day in it or something like that, like, at least. Just, like, a shit to do. And I, that was just never me, you know. I was never someone who makes, makes goals. But I, I don't necessarily think that that's, like, a great way to live your life. I think that everybody should just do what, what they want to do, what they can do, and what works for them and I think just for me you know just like having a pretty hardcore work ethic and anything I want to be successful in um has gotten the results instead of you know setting eight thousand goals yeah I, I definitely agree with that like I think a lot of people can focus on the the, the whole the the goal, the goal setting almost becomes something where they're, they're just ticking off boxes and keeping track of stuff but at the end of the day yeah like, where's the where, where's the actual product like how does it trickle down to the bottom line i mean the thing about not having goals like you obviously do have goals right <clears throat> like i always i don't have like a streaming goal or something i mean i want to stream a bunch in 2018 you know i want to win money playing poker in 2018 i want to i really really it's not a goal but i really want to win like a big live tournament i've had such an ridiculously insane amount of close calls in the last two three years in high stakes live tournaments with five hundred thousand to a million dollars for first and I really want to fucking be holding that stupid ass trophy, have that dumb ass winner's pick and just feel validated through like a live tournament bank, you know, seeing all these fucking dummies win live tournaments and just <laughs> sitting here on the sidelines getting 20th place, losing that important flip in every single fucking tournament. And I, w I really want to do that, you know, but like people make goals like that. Like my goal for 2018 is to win a live tournament. And I'm just like, that's not a fucking reasonable goal. Like that's a goal that's like you can play every single live tournament you 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 can possibly play and like you can still not lose not win one pretty easily you know variance is a bitch like we talked about earlier but yeah i mean I, you still have goals is what i'm trying to get across you know like i still have goals i still want to win money playing cards i want to get better as a poker player i want to you know develop uh, a stronger schedule in my life i want to work out more i want to eat a little bit healthier like these are all things that i, I have those goals like i know i want to do these things in the back of my mind i just don't set them like if i'm not done this in the next six months then I don't know what I'll have done with my life kind of thing, you know, which is like, that's just not me. 
Unquestionably, many top poker players are aware of and even intentionally cultivate a brand these days. Uh, Unibet Poker recently organized some seminars for us with branding experts, but some think it may have backfired and it turns out that David can now justify any of his bad behavior by saying that his brand identity is salty, <laughs> controversial and mean. It's uh, true, it's all true. Have you ever worked with branding people and what three words would, dis- would you use to describe the Tonka brand? Um, we had a eight at eight, uh, convention recently with the, all the pros were there, you know, the whole team eight at eight team was there and it was really great. Um, and yeah, we had some branding guys come in and the, I, I mean, it was probably more helpful for some of the other brand amb- or for some of the other eight at ambassadors than myself. They mostly just re- reiterated shit that I already knew. There was like one guy from YouTube and Google and one guy from Twitter and the, you know, they came in and they gave some, some lectures and stuff, but it was all just like relatively simple shit that I already knew, you know? Um, but I do work with, uh, with Mac, uh, a good buddy of mine for many years. He has a company game plan. Uh, they, you know, help me with my brand direction, uh, a little bit. And, you know, we work together with that, uh, three words describe the brand. Hmm. Honestly, like, I don't know. I, I never think of this kind of shit. Uh, straightforward, real, fucking awesome. <laughs> I think, think that might be five words, but we're going to let it through. Five words, yeah, five <laughs> words. No, no, honestly, I have no idea, guys. I don't, but like like goal setting, you know, I don't I don't set out to have my brand be like a certain thing. It just kind of develops, you know. Yeah, maybe it's straightforward, <laughs> uh, real, and can't fucking count. Can't fucking count, yeah, that's even better. That, that seems reasonable. Well, I, I do have to push back on you slightly there. You, you did say that you didn't really need much help. I can't help but feel that someone must have come in there and tell you that maybe uh, famously punting off uh, big in blackjack, <laughs> in blackjack while apoplectic drunk maybe isn't the greatest brand image. <laughs> I know, yeah, no, I know we, you well, pulled this particular video down, but it is fair to say that it did boost your brand, sort of. Uh, was that night contrived or a complete happy no, accident? God, no, that just happened, man. I just got drunk. It just It just happened, you know. I'll put that I'll put that night very far out of my uh out of my psyche. I don't I don't think that that night didn't it happen because I don't remember a bunch of it and that we're just going to stick with that. <laughs> well, you'll always have people like us here to remind you of it. Before I let you go, uh on Joe Ingram and I did I did listen to your recent uh, podcast appearance there. You mentioned the Beer Olympics. Uh can you elaborate on this sporting spectacular and which of your Irish mates is going to inevitably win? The Beer Olympics. We've already done the Beer Olympics actually. Oh that that podcast was from ages ago, man. Did I research the wrong episode? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Beer the Beer Olympics was uh Yeah, I've done two Joey Pods and the first one. Oh maybe, shit, maybe I did the wrong one. <laughs> I watched that all morning. It was like 2 hours. <laughs> yeah, there's another more recent one. It was, uh, I don't know, like a few weeks ago, a month ago or something. But yeah, the Beer Olympics, that's from like a year and a half ago or something. And that was uh, Jono, Nick, Gareth, myself, Espen, Mac. And then like, ah, uh, fuck, who else was there? Oh, was Ollie Quinn there? I- I'm, not, I'm not sure who else was there, but there was like three or four other people, I think. Maybe, maybe I, think, I think we had nine people in total. And that was a great day, man. That was a really good day. We uh, There was a bunch of different categories you could win in, but I think Jono's team ended up winning it. I think it was Jono, Gareth, and Nick. I think they ended up closing it out. And it was Espen, Mac, and I on our team, I think, as well. Yeah, that's right. Fuck, man, that was a really good day. I think I, I, think I was in bed at like 12.30. 
I think we started at 11 a.m. and I was in bed at fucking 12:30. <laughs> I think the other guy stayed out until like six or seven or something, but I I couldn't handle, I couldn't hack it. <laughs> well, it remains for me to say thank you so much, Parker, for coming on the show. It's been really fun talking to you. I was hoping you'd be as entertaining as your Twitch stream always is, and you certainly haven't disappointed. Great, love to hear, boys. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Parker. Well, it's Oscar week this week, so I thought I'd play us out with the song that I think should have won Best Original Song. This is Sufjan Stevens and Mystery of Love.
again to Keith, Paul, Kieran, Diva and Parker. If you'd like to check out Keith's blog, go to keithimprover.blogspot.com. Next week, we turn our attention to the Irish Poker Open. So who better to have on than last year's champion, Griffin Benger, and honorary Irishman, the voice of poker himself, Jesse May. Until then, from Dara, Ian and myself, good night and good luck. Oh, <laughs>